Bruce already prayed for us, so I'm just going to jump right in. Um, lots of you know that Emmy and I used to live in Liverpool, England, and in Liverpool, England is the second greatest sporting franchise of all time, after the Chicago Cubs, uh, is Liverpool Football Club. And uh, a couple years ago, while we were still living there, we won the Champions League. And it was a great year. Don't even bring up Manchester that year. Uh, it was a great year because we actually snuck into the final. Like we, we, it was this incredible match that got us into the, to the Champions League final. And uh, we won it quite handily. Um, actually, I was at a wedding while I was watching the match. I was literally watching the match during the reception. It was Clinton Hans' wedding. Um, so I was like, congratulations on your wedding. I'm going to take my iPad and watch the football match. <laughs> And uh, a few weeks later, we had a big celebration in Liverpool. It was a huge, massive celebration um, right down, actually outside uh, on the main street, right where Emmy and I live. Uh, you could actually watch it from our balcony, but I didn't want to watch it from so far away. I wanted to be in it, so I wanted to be part of the celebration and to experience the joy of celebrating a championship uh, win. And so I'm there with some friends of mine, and uh, my friend happens to be a professional photographer and videographer, and he said, hey, I've got my really nice camera. I'm going to take photos of the bus as it comes by. Could you just with your iPhone take a video and make sure that you get like the manager and the players will all be on top of the bus. Just make sure that you record their faces because I'd love to have this video forever and ever so I can remember this moment. I was like, I am on it. I got on my phone. I'm a great videographer and uh, held it up as they were coming by, but I did not want to watch them go by through a tiny screen. So here's what I captured. I know some of you work in the pictures, so if you're looking for a cinematographer, I'm available for hire. Uh, throughout the city that day, there were somewhere around a million people all rejoicing, experiencing joy and sharing their joy with the players and the coaches and with the other millions of fans around them. Uh, joy wasn't the only response around uh, the, the world to Liverpool's incredible championship run. Uh, there were actually some who were uh, uh, the nicest thing I'd say is they were hostile about Liverpool winning. Um, and uh, they were filled with hostility because their team didn't win. And then there were other people, uh, even more than that, millions and millions around the world, and probably every single person in this room who, when they won, were filled with total and utter indifference. They're like, Liverpool who? What is... I thought it was called soccer. Um, and, uh, and so if you heard of it, that's maybe what you thought. You just thought, well, who cares? Um, now, I realize that's not, a whole, that's not much of a Christmas story, talking about a championship win uh, in the summer, but uh, there is one element to a championship parade that is relevant at Christmas, and it's the joy. It's the joy. We're now in the third week of Advent, which is the week leading up to Christmas when we think about joy. And at the first Christmas, there was actually much rejoicing by Joseph and Mary and the shepherds and the Magi and by Simeon. But joy wasn't the only response that people had to Jesus. There were some who responded to him with hostility, 
and others who responded to his birth with complete and utter indifference. In fact, in the passage we're looking at today, it was, it was actually only those who worshipped, only those who worshipped Jesus, who experienced joy. All the others were hostile or indifferent. And if we're being honest, these days joy seems like a, a fairly elusive emotion. Like you know that it exists, you know that it's out there and that some people have it, but it's, it's eluded you in some way. Uh, we're far more likely to experience hostility or indifference or anxiety than we are to experience joy. And so the question I want to ask today on the week that we think about joy, is there something about Christmas, something about the birth of Christ, more than a championship parade, more than giving or receiving a good gift on Christmas Day, is there something that can bring joy? Something that can cut through the hostility, can cut through the indifference and bring us true and lasting joy. So let's look at today's passage. Because according to Matthew chapter 2, there is something. Because in Matthew chapter 2, we come across these three responses to Jesus. Hostility, indifference, and worship. And only one of those three leads to joy. So let's have a look at it. Herod, he responds with hostility. The religious scholars, they actually respond with indifference. And the magi from the east, they respond with worship. So first, hostility. Uh, And by the way, it's a little bit misleading to say that only the third group, only the Magi from the East are the ones worshiping, because actually everyone in this passage worships, but only the Magi worship Christ. And you say, well, wait a minute, what do you mean everybody worships? What do you mean everyone worships? Well, first of all, look at what Herod says to the Magi when they come to him, verse 8. He says, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Now, of course, you you know the rest of the story. Herod is being disingenuous. He doesn't actually want to worship Jesus. He just wants to find out where he is. But that doesn't mean that Herod isn't a worshiper. That there's not something or someone that he is worshiping. The very influential writer, uh, David Foster Wallace, who was famously brought up as an atheist in an atheistic home, Uh, He wrote this in an essay. Uh, The essay is called This is Water, and here's what he says in it. He says, here's something that's weird but true. Don't you like the way he writes? Apparently he wrote sentences that are like a thousand words long. Um, Anyway, here's something that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC, Jesus Christ, or Allah, or be it Yahweh, or the Wiccan Mother Goddess, or the Four Noble Truths, or some inviolable set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. Foster Wallace makes two points there, and we'll come back to the second one in a minute, but his first point is this. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And so the point he's making is that the human heart can't help but revere someone or something. It has to give its allegiance to something, be it a god or a set of ideals or even the self. And it's quite common, especially today, for people to worship themselves. So everyone in this passage is a worshiper, and everyone in this room is a worshiper. Everyone who lives on this street out here is a worshiper. And in this neighborhood and in this city, everyone is worshiping someone or something. As Foster Wallace said, there is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. 
The only choice we get is what to worship. Now, it's also misleading to say that all worship leads to joy. The object of the worship, who you worship or what you worship, also matters. So not all worship leads to joy. And that was Foster Wallace's second point in that essay. Now, I don't totally agree with everything that he says in there, but I do agree with the sentiment. He said that as long as you worship a god or a good set of moral truths or ideals, you'll be fine. But if you worship anything else, it will eat you alive. Uh, Now, I don't agree with all of that, and I'll talk about that in a second. But one of my old professors wrote a book called We Become What We Worship. And in it, he said something similar. He said the the main point of his book is this. He said what people revere, in other words, what they worship, what people revere, they resemble either for ruin or restoration. What people revere, what they worship, they resemble either for ruin or restoration. Uh, Foster Wallace in that same essay, essay, he actually goes on to say, if you worship money and things, if they're where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. So here's where I would begin to diverge from what David Foster Wallace said. You know, he said, as long as you worship some sort of higher ideal, that won't eat you alive. But I would say that if you worship anything or anyone other than Jesus Christ, that will eat you alive. And that's what the Magi find in here, and that's what the text shows us. That if you worship anyone or anything other than Jesus Christ, it ends up eating you alive. It ends up turning you into something horrible. Because what you revere you resemble, either for ruin or restoration. In other words, who or what you worship matters. So let's look at Herod in verse 1, because he's the one who responds in hostility. So after Jesus is born, and by the way, this could be up to two years after he was born, the Magi come to Herod the king. And there's lots of debate about who the Magi are and how many of them they were. You know, were they kings? Were there three of them? Who knows? We don't know how many they were, but we do know, based on what they're called, we have a pretty good understanding of who they were. Now, the word magi actually is where we get our English word for magic. Uh, They're related. Magi, magic, it's pretty much the same word. Uh, But don't think magic castle or pen and teller magic. It's not like they they came on Jesus' birthday to do the magic show for the kids. That's not what they came for. They were something more like spiritual consultants. They interpreted dreams and signs in the stars. It says they came from the east, so probably from Persia, which is modern-day Iran, or perhaps from a bit further east in Iraq. And we'll talk more about them in a minute, but for now, the Magi come to Herod the king, and they ask him a question in verse 2. Here's a question. Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? Now think about this. Herod is the king of the Jews. That's his job. He's had that job most of his life. Uh, And it doesn't sound like Herod's had a baby any time in the recent past. And so this question can only come to Herod as a threat. And in fact, it does come as a threat because look at verse 3. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. Now that word disturbed, it actually means something like troubled with great fear. Uh, You might even use it to describe someone who's trembling. 
And this question, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews, it puts him immediately in self-preservation mode, because he's the king. Now, self-preservation doesn't always mean self-worship, but it can lead you there. It can eat you alive in that way. And that's exactly what it does for Herod. He moves beyond self-preservation into self-worship. Because look at, notice what he does. Look at what he does. He goes immediately on the offensive. He attempts to mislead the Magi by saying, hey, when you find him, could you tell me where he is so that I can worship him? But in reality, he means, when you find him, tell me where he is so that I can kill him. And when they don't tell him, I love that, the last verse, uh, verse 12, it's like, and then they went a different way. (laughs) I love that. Verse 16, when Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious. And he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were two years old and under. And so his response is one of hostility. Why? Why does he respond this way? Well, he moves beyond self-preservation to self-worship. You see, he, in his own mind, he must be exalted at all costs. He must be revered by everyone, including himself. And so let's go back to our principle. What you revere, you resemble, either for ruin or restoration. And so if Herod worships himself, why does he respond to the birth of Jesus with hostility? Why does this violence come out? I mean, other people who worship themselves, they don't become hostile and commit genocide. So why does Herod? Well, it's because that's what's already on the inside. If you turn in on yourself, you worship, you revere yourself, you just become more of what you already are. And so if you're already selfish, guess what? You become more selfish. If you're already proud, you become more proud. If you're already greedy, you become more greedy. If you're already impatient, you get the idea. And it's interesting, by the way, this genocide, it doesn't make it into the history books anywhere in the Bible or anywhere other than the Bible. Um, And you kind of wonder why. Uh, Well, history actually can tell us it's because Herod had such a hostile and violent uh, uh, insides that a genocide like this was was just commonplace under his rule. He was so anxious about losing his throne that he famously murdered his wife and mother-in-law because he was afraid that they would take his throne. Not only that, he actually, he, had, he murdered three of his own sons out of fear that they would take his throne. So if you're counting, that's five people in his own family, his wife, his mother-in-law, and three sons. He actually murdered so many of his own family members that the Roman emperor Augustus, you know the one who made the famous decree that had Mary and Joseph end up in Bethlehem? Do you know what he said about Herod? He said, it's safer to be his pig than his son. And not only that, but towards the end of his life, Herod rounded up uh, the most prominent men of Jerusalem, and he put them in prison and decreed that when he died, they should all be executed. These are the things that made it into the history books. And so you can see what's in Herod's heart already. And that if we were to... If he were to worship and revere himself, then what would come out? What would be his response? Well, more violence, more hostility, because that's what's already in there. And so that's the first response to the birth of Jesus Christ. It's hostility. And Herod's hostility, it ate him alive. A person like that, a person who worships the self, they can't have joy in their own life. They can't even have a functioning family. 
A person who worships the self can only have anxiety because they're afraid that the life that they've built for themselves could be lost at any moment. And just think about yourself for a minute. Are you a self-worshipper? Are you the person at the center of your life? Because if you are, your response to Jesus, it might not be hostility, but whatever it is that's inside of you that you want the most, that you desire the most, that is what you'll cling to. That is what will come out. Again, in the words of David Foster Wallace, if you worship money or things, if there where you tap real meaning in life, then you'll never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when, the time, and when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. And so think about it. What is at the center of your life? What is most important to you? What is it that if you lost it, or if there was a threat of losing it, you would react as severely as Herod did? Because like Herod, if you're a self-worshipper, that is what will come out and that will eat you alive. Okay, that's the first response to the birth of Jesus. Not a very warm and fuzzy Christmas thing. Um, but that's the, that's the first thing. So let's look at the second response to see if it gets any better. The second response is indifference. Uh, you know, I can remember uh, actually when we were telling our church and our friends back in Liverpool that we were moving to Los Angeles, the response I dreaded the most was not anger, I would have understood anger, right? I would actually kind of hope that our friends would be a little bit angry that we were moving away. Uh, I wasn't afraid of joy, which might have been just as painful, like, oh, thank God they're finally leaving. <laughs> Not very nice, but it's still a better response than the one I was most afraid of, which was indifference. Indifference says, I don't care, whatever. It means it's not even worth the response. In other words, our friendship, our presence there maybe meant very little to them. That's the worst response I think that you can get. And uh, the second group of people to respond to the birth of Jesus are the religious leaders. And in verse four, it says that Herod called together all the chief people's chief priests and teachers of the law. He asked them where the Messiah was to be born. And look at what the religious leaders say, verse five. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, and the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And then that's it. They say nothing else. They don't, that's it. They just, they give the facts. They give the information. They don't grab their coats and their mittens and head out with a magi. They don't call for a celebration in the temple and invite the newborn Messiah to anoint him. Nothing. They don't get another mention in Matthew's gospel until 30 years later. And even then, they start out as largely indifferent towards Jesus and eventually become hostile. Now, this is, by the way, a shocking indifference. It's not as if these religious leaders and scholars had to do some research to find some obscure passage at the last minute. This is like, this would have been a prophecy that they would have known by heart. This would have been a moment that they would have prayed for their entire lives. And for generations before them, the other religious leaders would have been praying for this moment their entire lives. But instead of joy, they respond with complete and utter indifference. Again, why? Well, let's go back to our principle. What you revere, you resemble either for ruin or restoration. 
And it's also extremely well documented in history that the Hebrew religious leaders in the first century when Jesus was born revered more than anything else their set of rules that they had come up with. These religious laws that, that went even beyond what the Bible said. Even more than the scriptures themselves, even more than God himself, they, they revealed these religious laws and rituals that they had set up. In other words, by the time the Messiah, the one they should have been longing for, by the time he came, he meant nothing to them. For them, the birth of Jesus was a who cares, it was a whatever. They responded the way that Emmy responds to me most summer days when I try and tell her the highlights of the Cubs game earlier in the day. She looks at me. She, she nods. But she is not listening to me. And maybe that's you with Jesus. Maybe that's your response. Maybe that's always been your response. Or perhaps it's been your response lately for some reason. Perhaps for you, that joy in Jesus has been that elusive thing. You know it's there. You know some people have it. You just can't seem to get it yourself. And what tends to happen for the person who wants to experience that joy is you, tend, you, you try to dig down a bit deeper. You... You look everywhere. It must be somewhere. And so the deeper you dig, the more and more you feel worse about yourself because you can't find it there. You can't find it in your soul for some reason. Can you relate to that? You look for joy somewhere inside yourself. You look for it in your emotions, in your soul. You look for it between the sofa cushions, but it's not there. And what you end up feeling towards Christ is some kind of indifference. And if that's how you've been feeling, let me just tell you, it doesn't have to be that way. The answer to that longing is actually found in our third point, worship. That's the third response to the birth of Jesus. And this is the one, the only one in the passage that leads to joy. Now, remember what it says back in verse 2. The Magi, they show up in Jerusalem and they ask, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? And then they go on to say, we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, there's something important to learn here. Not about the star. Nobody knows how that happened. Everyone tries to come up with a reason. Nobody knows. But there's something important to notice here. Notice that they had intention. They actually set out with intention to worship Christ. It wasn't incidental. It wasn't like, hey, we were just sort of passing by Israel and we thought we'd drop in. They said, we saw his star rise in the east and we have come to worship him. They set an intention to worship Christ. And I think we can learn from that. What we can learn from that is it's that intention that keeps us from self-worship. It's that intention that keeps us from indifference. Intentionally setting our attention, our hearts to worship something other than the self or a set of ideals or a career or a spouse or a child or pleasure. And all those things, they're all alluring on their own ways, but to worship any of them would in the end eat you alive. And so how do you keep from doing that? 
what you learn from the Magi, but you must set an intention to worship Christ above all other things. But then notice where the intention to worship, notice where it leads them. It leads them directly to joy. There's like a direct line here from an intention to worship to joy. Look down in verse 9. After they had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. I love this, because that last word there in verse 10, the word overjoyed, it's actually four words in the original language. We've somehow shrunk it down to one. It's four words, and it very literally says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. It doesn't quite roll off the tongue, but it gets the point across with great emphasis. And so do you see now where this intention to worship, where it leads them? They haven't even gotten to Jesus yet, and they're already filled with exceedingly great joy just at the thought of arriving in his presence. And if you look down at the next verse, what do they do when they arrive? Verse 11, on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. And I love that it says they bowed down and worshiped. Because what is bowing down? What is bowing down? But a lowering of the self. It's a physical act of humbling yourself before someone who is greater than you. It's actually a way of exalting the person that you're bowing down to. You know, rather than going and picking them up, which would be ridiculous, you bow down. So you've exalted them. In other words, if you are bowing down, self-worship isn't possible. And indifference isn't possible. So here's the other thing we learn about how to worship from the Magi. First, we, we see that it should always start with an intention, but second, now, worship should always humble you. You can't worship something and be proud at the same time. Because if you do, that's just lip service. That's not worship. That's not humbling yourself. Genuine worship always includes humility. And that, by the way, is why our worship here starts by looking up to worship Christ, but then always moves to looking down, to confess, to humble ourselves. And it's that pattern that leads us to joy. You set an intention to worship. That's the call to worship that we have every Sunday. And you worship him and you humble yourself. Now, some of you might remember a few months back uh, a quote from Eugene Peterson's book, A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And in it, he talks about this dynamic of actions and feelings. He says that we often want to have feelings before we're willing to do the actions, right? So it's sort of in our culture today, it feels really inauthentic to do an action if your heart's not in it. And most people could just write it off and be like, well, that's not very authentic. But here's what Peterson says. He says, we live in what one writer has called the age of sensation. We think that if we don't feel something, there could be no authenticity in doing it. But the wisdom of God says something different. And listen to this, that we can act ourselves into a new way of feeling much quicker than we can feel ourselves into a new way of acting. 
He goes on, he says, worship is an act that develops feelings for God, not a feeling for God that is expressed in an act of worship. When we obey the command to praise God in worship, our deep essential need to be nurtured with God is nurtured. I don't know the stats on this, but over and over and over again in the Bible, we're commanded to worship. You start with the act, and then the feeling follows. I think this is especially helpful if you're feeling indifferent towards Christ at the moment. If that feeling of joy is somewhere eluding you. Peterson says we can act ourselves into a new way of feeling much quicker than we can feel ourselves into a new way of acting. And so if you're feeling indifferent towards Christ at the moment, try this. I almost never get this practical with you guys. I'm going to get really practical. Set yourself an intention to worship Christ and then just do the action. Uh, you can obviously do that here on Sunday mornings. Uh, but you can do that at home too. Uh, for those of you that don't want to sing at home like Tom Cruise and Risky Business, uh, you can perhaps try what I do. I open up my Bible, and whatever I happen to be reading at the moment, I open up my Bible along with some paper and a pen, and I read over a chapter or a section of Scripture, and I make a list, just a bullet point list of all the things in there that I can praise God for. And then I go through the list. God, I praise you for this. I worship you because you're like this. I praise you for doing this. It's simple, but it's effective. Now, the rest of you can crank up some Christian music and dance around in your underwear and socks if you'd like to. And if you haven't seen Risky Business, then you have no idea what I'm talking about, and this is just really awkward. <laughs> but let me just finish by showing you why Jesus is worth worshiping in the first place. Why is it worth being here gathered together to worship? Why is it worth taking the time to set an intention to worship Christ day by day? Why is, it, why is it that you can worship him over yourself? Why shouldn't you be indifferent to him? Ultimately, why, why worshiping Jesus Christ means that you can rejoice exceedingly with great joy? Why can you do this? Well, look at the gifts. Verse 11. It says, Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Now, most biblical commentators think these gifts were extremely fitting for Jesus, that they weren't some sort of random uh, gifts, but were symbolic of the person of Jesus. That they're supposed to tell us something about who he is. The first gift, it says, was gold. And apparently in the ancient world, you would only give gold to a king. So if you're, you know spouse or, you know, a significant other asks you for gold this Christmas, you can just say, I'm sorry, that's just for kings. <laughs> it's in the Bible. So I thought that was funny. Okay. Um, <clears throat> apparently in the ancient world, you would only give gold to a king. And so it was, it was the medal of royalty. In other words, they, what they're saying is Jesus Christ is king. And they've already said it verbally. Where is the one born king of the Jews? And so what do they give him? They give him gold. The second gift was frankincense. And frankincense in the ancient world was used by priests as part of leading the people in worship. 
the smell and the visible smoke rising was symbolic of the people's prayers rising up to God. And so with this gift, the Magi were also saying that Jesus is a priest. And then the third gift was myrrh. Uh, It's actually the strangest gift. Myrrh was used to anoint the dead at the time of their burial. It's what's known as a burial spice or a grave spice. If you read Luke chapter 23, after Jesus died, it says that some of the women prepared spices and perfumes for his body before they put him in the grave. And so the third gift is actually symbolizing that Jesus would die. And so put them all together. And the gift symbolized that Jesus is a king and a priest who would die. Now, what is this text telling us? Well, it's telling us that Jesus Christ is the true king, the perfect high priest, and yet he would die. He actually, he gave up his throne in heaven. And he gave up his life in order to fulfill what the angel said to Joseph back in Matthew chapter 1. Remember what the angel said to Joseph in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 20. You can just look across the page. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, which actually means the Lord saves, because he will save his people from their sins. And so they gave him myrrh because at the end of his life, Jesus Christ would go to the cross. And there on the cross, he would bear the wrath of God. The king, the priest, would bear the wrath of God for sin. And he would die and he would be buried. But not only that, that he would be raised from the dead and then exalted to the highest place. Where the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. And this is why he's worthy of your worship, of you humbling yourself and exalting him. Because he is the true king who truly humbled himself. Because he is the priest who didn't just make a sacrifice, but he himself is the sacrifice. Remember what David Foster Wallace said at the beginning. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is who. And I think what we've seen from this passage is that to worship anything or anyone other than Jesus Christ, it will eat you alive. Because remember what my old professor said, what people revere, they resemble either for ruin or restoration. And so let's be people, let's be men and women who worship Jesus Christ. Because those who do, those who set that intention, those who engage in the act of worship, eventually they will rejoice with exceedingly great joy. Let's pray to that end. Oh, Father, it's our intention today to worship Jesus Christ the one who was born king of the Jews. And so right now, this act of praying, this act of praising him is our act of worship. Jesus Christ, we praise you that you are king of kings. Jesus Christ, we praise you that you are the great high priest who passed through the heavens. Jesus Christ, we praise you 
that you went to the cross, that you bore our shame, that you made us right with God. We praise you that you were raised from the dead and exalted to the highest place that has been given the name that is above every name. And so we bow the knee, we humble ourselves before you in worship. We ask that out of that you would fill us with joy, that we would rejoice with exceedingly great joy. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.